Is your kid ready at six, at eight, at ten to be shoved out the door with no instructions and the oncoming traffic? Um, and they go, oh, don't be so ridiculous. And I go, well, why in plain sight have we allowed a system so important, so central, so powerful to do just that? Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. Like many of us, I've spent a lot of time at home this year, which, as I'm sure everyone knows, can be tough. But one silver lining is that I've gotten to spend a lot of time with my son, and it's been pretty amazing to see him immersed in all these new hobbies. And the thing that he's totally hooked on right now is origami. So when he first expressed interest in this, we went out and bought him a couple of books. But he's only seven, so his origami skills are significantly better than his reading skills, which means that it required a lot of parental involvement. So we looked around for some more self-directed instruction and ended up on YouTube. Hello, I'm going to show you how to make a paper origami crane. As with almost any other hobby you can think of, there are thousands and thousands of hours of origami tutorials on YouTube. And our sons started devouring them. This corner and fold it down. We'd leave him in front of the computer and he'd re-emerge an hour later holding an elaborately folded swan. And he started getting into magic tricks too. He'd memorize these really complicated sequences and practice them endlessly. It was honestly pretty amazing. And then one day, I went in to check on him and found him trying to hypnotize himself. Follow the pocket watch. You're feeling very, very tired. The YouTube algorithm, which is infamous for its tendency to direct people to more and more extreme content, had taken him from a disappearing coin trick to a video on self-hypnotism. When I turned it off, he looked at me and said, But Dad, it will get me the best sleep of my life. Close your eyes. The irony of all this is not lost on me. I, more than many, know that the internet is not always a great place for adults, let alone kids. At the same time, there's clearly some amazing content on there. So the question then becomes, how do we give our kids access to the good stuff while protecting them from the bad? It's a question that Baroness Bieben Kidron has been wrestling with for some time now. Bieben is a filmmaker, policymaker, and activist. She's directed more than 20 movies, including Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason. In 2013, she directed a documentary called In Real Life, where she followed around a group of teenagers as they dove deeper and deeper into the internet. It ended up being a pivotal moment in her career. After seeing the dangers of some of these digital technologies firsthand, Bieben has become a tireless advocate for better regulation around kids and tech. And she's now a member of the House of Lords and sits on their Democracy and Digital Technologies Committee. Last year, she was instrumental in passing the UK's age-appropriate design code, which lays out 15 standards for how platforms should treat kids. When a draft of the code was put forward, Bieben said, Children and their parents have long been left with all the responsibility but no control. Meanwhile, the tech sector, against all rationale, has been left with all the control, but no responsibility. The code will change this. Bieben has some fascinating ideas about how we can make the internet a safer place for kids, and how, in doing that, 
we might actually make the internet safer for everyone. Here is Baroness Beban Kidron. All right. Uh, do I call you Baroness? No, you call me Beban. Beban Kidron, uh, welcome to Big Tech. Glad to be with you. So I, I watched a talk you gave eight years ago recently that was before you got this heavily involved in the children in technology issue. Evidence suggests that humans in all ages and from all cultures create their identity in some kind of narrative form. Where you were talking about the power of cinema. And you seem to be lamenting the fact that while cinema was the last century's most influential art form, Hollywood was sort of caught in this moment of sensationalism and ahistoricism. Um, and that that was affecting our kids, <laughs> that they were being caught in this entertainment industry that wasn't providing what cinema could provide. And what narrative, what history, what identity, what moral code are we imparting to our young? And I'm wondering with all the changes in technology since and the way we consume and produce media, whether you still think that's the case. So it's a really interesting question. And I think that in that particular talk, I was sort of lamenting something that was about a collective experience. And mm. so the way that we consume um, content and narrative has mm. become very individual, has become island, and it's much, much harder to have a collective uh, experience. And I think there's a loss there. And mm. I think that perhaps um, some of the mesmeric qualities and intellectual ambition. What do you mean by mesmeric? So when you go into a cinema, you know, there's a moment, isn't there? There's the mm. anticipation, the, the lights go out, the ads mm. come on, the, mm. the, 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 the names <laughs> fill the screen, the music thing. Mm. And, and, and you go down into a sort of a dream state and a sort of a, a sort of, I don't know how to, how to say it, but a giving over to this experience for the duration. That was something that I saw play out on hundreds and hundreds of children as an incredibly positive force. And mm. many of them said to me, because I ran this huge um, film club, which, mm. you know, which had, had tens of thousands of kids in it. So I, yeah. I had a lot of experience of talking directly to them. And a lot of them said to me, um, you know, that was quiet time, miss. You know, I've, mm. I've, I haven't been that still for a very long time. You know, they move me around the classroom at school. You know, they move me around my life. I am nudged and pushed. And that experience was, was overwhelming in, in a positive sense. So I mm. think that's what I was talking about. And it does mm. absolutely uh, feed into bite-sized, rapid, nudge technology and so on. But I wouldn't want to sort of lament the idea of, you know, that there was only one way and, we, and this is 20th century um, storytelling in the 21st century. I, th I think there's something much more profound uh, about the problem of, of digital technologies uh, and there's something rather marvellous about that. But it's, it, you know, they're not in absolute direct opposition to each other. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess even though we're in a moment where long-form storytelling in film is having a bit of a resurgence with the streaming platforms and the multi-season dramas and all of that, that's not collective. So that's that's still not getting yeah. at this aspect that we're we're not necessarily experiencing that together. No. All right. So moving to the sort of topic of children and digital technology, your first sort of step into that soon after actually that talk that I watched was the documentary in real life. I text them a lot. We tweet each other and we talk on Google Talk a lot. And have you had a boyfriend in real life? No. And I watched it again recently and was struck by a lot of things. I mean, almost it, it as a time capsule was kind of remarkable, both the people you interview and the technology, the way you talk about the technologies. And it, it really was capturing um, a moment. Um, but I'm wondering why you felt it was so important to feature that age group at that time using those kinds of technologies and what sort of brought you to that, the urgency of it, I guess. So... I've already said I was at the time, uh, you know, what I had set up this charity. It was called Film Club. It's now called Into Film. And I was going in and out of schools and in and out of the lives of children. And around, you know, 2011, 2012, I noticed something different about that community. And it was sort of, it was a sort of a funny thing. It was a silence and a restlessness. And it was that mm. move actually from that chatter that you associate uh, with young teenagers into mm. actually something that was the bright light and the poking at the phone. Yeah. And it was the time when a smartphone became a price point that either a parent would buy it for a teacher or the parent would upgrade and give their old phone to the child, mm. you know, and, and, and it was sort of, it felt like overnight. Now, when I first started thinking about that, I was really much more interested um, as a filmmaker in the concept of what it was like to be both here and there. Mm. And then what was there you know, did we understand? And people often ask me, was it about my own children? It wasn't. My children are a little bit older, you know, adult now. It mm. was not sort of anxious mother stuff. It was, it mm. was more philosophical. It was, you know, what does it mean to be a child and always have another there there? Was my question. That was the mm. essay question. It wasn't until I had spent what I would probably uh, have to admit was several hundred hours in the bedrooms of teenagers. Which is a, kind of I a terrifying got... prospect, as you see in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> An absolutely terrifying uh, prospect. Yeah. Um, uh, it wasn't until the middle of that that I realized that, that there was something else. And the something else that first bothered me was the absolute lack of understanding that this was a hardwired, privately owned, uh, constantly saved, upgraded, designed mm. world that had a purpose. Yeah. And those yeah? are truisms now, right? I mean, we know those things now. But then that wasn't the debate, was it? It wasn't the debate. 
it wasn't understood. And, and as you will remember from the film, um, the thing that sort of got a bit obsessive was me asking mm. people, where's the cloud? And mm. they started pointing up at the sky mm. and only very few of them were doing it in any kind of ironic sense. I mean, they, yeah. they literally didn't know. Mm. And it's interesting that in the aftermath of making the film, um, I made this sort of bizarre promise that any teacher who asked me, I would go into their school and talk to the kids about what I had seen and what I had mm. done and so on. And uh, I used to show that clip of a Facebook server farm, which mm. is the endless, 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 endless shot mm. of, of blue blinking lights, you know, uh, and all the servers. And when I, when I talked about that with the kids... It was like a chill going through them and they go, but miss, you know, what would happen if they drop a bomb on it? Uh, and mm. I would get, and it was surprising how often they actually used that exact thing, exact wow. words. Sometimes they meant if someone destroyed it, set on fire and so on. Right. But mainly they said drop a bomb on it. Which is about as physical a thing as you could imagine, right? They're getting yeah. at the tangible aspect of it. They're getting at the tangible, yeah. exactly right. And, and, and as they, said it. I go, oh, don't worry. They got it in 10 other places and 100 other places. They copied it. And you could see in the room their energy dissipate. Mm. And, and emotionally, emotionally, those children understood what it meant to be fragmented, distributed, and not in control of, of what was and what they understood as their intimacies, their actions, mm. their mistakes, their yeah. pleasures, you know, their loves, things that were precious to them. Yeah. And so that second piece, so there's the kids in the bedroom, but that second piece of how the infrastructure was hidden was really, really important. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you have the third part of it, which is me crisscrossing America asking all the experts, and they're going, don't worry, it's a democratizing uh, 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 technology. And many of them, you know, many of them have had to face up to how long they asserted and were blind to, and I would mm. probably say willfully blind yeah. to a societal problem at scale. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, you watch them fall like, you know, the bottles, you know, like the bottles in the song. They yeah. fell off the wall one by one by one and yeah. finally had to admit, do you know what? You cannot pursue uh, this framing of, you know, all users must be equal. It's a democratizing thing. There will be no gatekeepers. Each one of those things is fundamentally flawed. And it's that all users will be equal that actually changed my life because it was mm. in a moment. And it's in my interview with uh, Nick Necroponte when mm. we're in New York. And he, he said this, all users will be equal as a sort of a as a, as a, um, you know, as a, as a good. Yeah. And he, mm. and he meant it and it sounds good. But actually, I suddenly had this thing, which is if all users are equal, then de facto children are being treated as adult. And that is mm. a problem. And it was sort of like, you know, it was a bit like the movies. You know, I'm sitting there in New York and, and I kind of go rewind, you know, brrr. Yeah. You know, through my brain, all these hundreds of hours I spent in kids' bedrooms. And I realize, you know, bottom line is 
Most of the problems kids have online are a direct result of the fact that the demands of them are adult. They mm. are assumed to have the maturity um, and the capacity of adults. And that doesn't matter whether it's, you know, nudge technology or, yeah. or adult content or, or, or misinformation, disinformation, you, you name it. In a, yeah. it, absolutely every way, we are demanding that they are adult at ever earlier ages. Yeah, I, I mean, that, hearing that in retrospect makes perfect sense. I was going to ask you what that transition point was from making the film to becoming, I mean, an activist and a policy maker, um, which is a different world. Um, there's no question. Um, yeah. But that makes perfect sense, right? That the, the flattening of the internet, treating everybody as equal, being layered onto a society where we actually don't treat everybody as equal. That's the whole point of yeah. living in a society with rules and norms and laws is that we treat yeah. different groups of people in different ways. Um, for a good reason, yeah. and that have evolved for over a really centuries, good reason. right? <laughs> Children are different than adults, and if the internet treats everybody the same, then that is harming something at some point, right? Yeah, and and actually, even if we take the harm language out, because I and and there are absolute harms, and I'm absolutely sure. prepared yeah, yeah. To, to to talk about that, mm. but but actually, it's a violation of rights. You know, mm. it's a it's a acceleration of risk. It's a diminution of the journey to maturity. Yeah. It's against our culture. Yeah. Um, you know, if a kid in our environment, you know, if there's something unpleasant, what do we do? We, we put our hand over their eyes. Yeah. Yeah. If they don't understand, we explain it differently. Mm. Yeah. If they're not ready yet, we say, hey, guys, next year you can do this. I mean, we are not talking about things that we don't know about. I think that 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 the forces that exist have done their absolute best to sow confusion about what's at stake here. But actually, the bizarre thing is how many people say, you know, I don't know about technology. And I turn around and go, yeah, but what do you know about the journey from from zero to 18? Yeah. You know, is your kid ready at six, mm. at eight, at ten, to be shoved yeah. out the door with no instructions <laughs> yeah. and, and the oncoming traffic. Um, and they go, oh, don't be so ridiculous. And I go, well, why in plain sight have we allowed a system so important, so central, so powerful to do just that? You mentioned going to speak to classes, and I do that a fair amount as well And about this topic to teachers and to students. And I'm constantly blown away by the concern of teachers in particular, and I would say yeah. high school teachers, because they are as you, on the front lines of bringing kids through that transition in life, right? And And they know how kids think and function and what they need to learn at different phases. Mm. And they know that's being eroded, eroded or circumvented or whatever it is by the way they're consuming information. And there's a disconnect between how they need to evolve as humans and how they're engaging in the digital world. So, so it's really interesting because I, I, I referred already to the fact that I made this crazy promise to go to any school that invited yeah. me. The reason I made that promise is because after I made the film, every time the lights went out 
and it didn't actually matter whether I was in um, Rio de Janeiro, Madrid, Manchester, London, New York, it didn't matter. Whenever the lights went up, the room was full of teachers. Yeah. And the reason that the room was full of teachers, I realized, is because a parent has, you know, one or two or three kids and they kind of make excuses and they've got a narrative that it's okay, but Billy's a bit upset, but Sophie isn't or whatever their thing is. Teachers see 30 kids and then another 30 kids and another 30 kids and throughout the day. And they knew they were like an early warning system. They were the canaries in the coal mine. They knew that there was something seismic happening and they didn't know what to do about it. And mm. that's how that moment came. And I, I did literally go to hundreds of schools over a period of 18 months yeah. in many countries, sometimes being translated. Yeah. And, and it was a life-changing experience. And as you've already pointed out, I actually stopped making films and, and I had my own kind of, uh, as my father used to call it, a pain of consciousness. Mm. You know, whether or not you really want to understand you have seen something that you cannot go back on, you cannot live with. And I feel that this is a profound social injustice at a generational level to at least one in three people in the digital world, right? right. This is not a minor matter. So mm. for a billion people, this is a problem. All right, let's talk about that problem a little bit. Um, <laughs> One of the things that really strikes me about it is that the scope of harms people are talking about, potentially, are so vast, right? So clustering something like childhood brain development and mental health, along with exposure to different kinds of content and bullying online and general social pressures that emerge in the system. Those are all very, very different things. And I'm I'm wondering how you parse that. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get at what the root of the harm is and, uh, and what we should really be going after here? So uh, that's a great question. And, and, and just to be irritating, I say we don't go after the harm, we go after the risk. Okay. Right? So, so you start at the other end of the tube. And it, it took some time to, to work this out. I absolutely agree with you that... that that if you lay down all the potential harms in front of you, you have on the one hand childhood, mm. yeah? You have on the other hand being a human being in the 21st century and on the third right. hand you have some really sort of egregious attacks on children's rights, liberties and so on. Yeah. So, you know, how do you put that all together? And, and, and um, what I try and look at with my colleagues uh, at Five Rights and my colleagues in the House of Lords um, is really about why we allow the level of risk in this uh, system mm. in a way that we actually ask people to mitigate in all other systems. Mm. And so what I mean is, you know, if you are a drug manufacturer, first of all, you have to go through a process. Uh, and then you've also got to look and see that actually someone who is under the age of 12, who's got a different body weight, might have a smaller dose. Hmm. 
or indeed a different medicine, you know. Yeah. And, and I could play that game ad infinitum, you know, that in all these different arenas, we actually go, ah, oh, what are we trying to achieve? Who, who is in the room? How do we make sure that what we're trying to achieve is suitable for the person in the room? That mm. is, you know, a risk analysis that goes on. And we do that all the time in all sorts of different All the things. time. Right. All the time. And we do it legally. Yeah. We do it in regulation. And we do it culturally. It's so funny you say that. Just this morning, there was a story in Canada about how our federal product safety regulator has forced a recall on ring door cameras, you know, the ones that take all the video, but because they catch on fire sometimes. Not because they're collecting this mass amount of data about society and being used by police departments to survey us, right? But so we know how to do this. We just don't do it for these things, right? Precisely. And so one of the things I often say is, you know, not all kids come to harm from all risks. But you know what, if we were sending washing machines and every every one in 300 burst in fire, we would have recall. So, so right. why is it that it is okay to have a poisonous system for kids in this arena? And the answer is, of course, it's not. And the other answer is, this is not a mature industry, you know, and, and, and it is maturing and we better get to it quick. What, yeah. what is unusual is how pervasive it is across so many things and, uh, and how powerful we have let it become and how little we have understood about how it is affecting uh, children and childhood. Yeah. But to be absolutely, you know, really, really precise in answering your question, that actually a lot of the work uh, that we're currently doing, whether it's work on creating a standard, uh, uh, age-appropriate framework for terms and conditions, whether it is a child-focused data uh, risk assessment, which we're doing with the regulator here, that actually the very first starting point is kind of going, what is your service? What are you processing? Mm. What are the potential outcomes? And does it affect these things? And some of the things that you might consider in that, and obviously we've got a long list that is turning into hopefully a new normal of the mm. questions you'd ask. But uh, you had a very long list earlier in your, in your question, didn't you? Yeah. And so you kind of go, well, you know, will it affect their emotional development? Will it affect their sleep? Is there, is there, will it make them vulnerable to, uh, someone seeing their real time location? Will it introduce a strange adult to an underage person, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can keep on going. Mm. And once you start asking those questions, you go, ah, well, that's not very appropriate, is it? You know, mm. how about we, we take out that particular risk? And yeah. one of the most sort of misunderstood things in this arena is that actually many of the things that we need to do to give kids a more equitable shout in this arena is actually switch things off. Mm. It's a lot less about new technology than it is actually about taking, you know, taking them out of the business model here and there. Don't yeah. target them with ads. Don't offer friendship suggestions. Don't network them in certain ways. Um, it, it's yeah. actually a lot less difficult to get some of these things. And to be mm. absolutely clear, I am, you know, I am never going to say 
that it should be 100% risk-free. It never will be. It never could be. But actually, if you take out the industrial level risk, which Mm. is, let's face it, a harm unrealized, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) And and leave us only with the realized harms once that risk has been dealt with in a reasonable and proportionate manner. Yeah. Then we have a fighting chance to deal with some of those harms because it wouldn't be the list that you that you gave at the beginning. No, that's right. And I and I want to talk about some of the the sort of policy levers, I guess, for back of a letter term in a second. But one last thing on this. I mean, so I have a seven-year-old son and I write and complain a lot about social media and platforms and all the things you talk about and care about too. Um, and one of the things he sort of likes more better than anything is these like hour long origami making videos on YouTube that, I mean, they're incredible. Like he, like mm. he spends an hour watching these things and duplicating them. And it's, it's truly remarkable to watch like the brain sort mm. of working in that creative way and following mm. these instructions and all of that. But I keep coming back to why on earth should I have to ad- embrace and use the entire problematic infrastructure and level of risk, as you say, of the YouTube ecosystem <laughs> in order to get that benefit. And I, I just wonder how, how we've gotten to a place where we're willing to take all of those chances and c- expose ourselves and our kids to all this vulnerability for that benefit. Um, mm. The trade-off just seems bizarre, doesn't it? Uh, I, you know, I think it is, and I think... Um... I mean, I, th- I think it's not entirely separate from other decisions we have made at a societal level, you mm. know, to uh, valorize efficiency, to exploit mm. tiny margins of production benefit, to not worry about the societal impacts of our supply lines and our behaviors, mm. uh, either on people or planet, you Mm. know. So I think we've sort of got into a god of efficiency, a god of growth, a god of profit. And in the wake of all of those things, you know, we've accepted some sort of infrastructural and business practice, which is not in everybody's best interests. Mm. I mean, it just simply isn't. And, and I only talk about kids in this policy area, but I think, you know, you don't, you don't have to get very far down the road as an Uber driver to work it out also, <laughs> you know. Um, We've so, made some trade-offs here. Right? So I think the, the, the sort of bit of, uh, you know, talking at, at that level, that is, that's the fight. What you have described is the fight. It should not be that the entire attention, future, potential educational outcomes, their 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 position in the in the justice system, you know, you name it, is at stake for watching a video when they're seven. And obviously, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But you know, why do we have to have you know all of that infrastructure? you know, on the shoulders of a child. And I think that, you know, we got to change that. And yeah. and the companies either got to do it because we forced them or mm. we've got to be prepared to pay uh, a little bit more for some content for children yep. or we've got to actually 
look at our values more profoundly and say, actually, this, this is out of kilter, this is out of balance, mm. and uh, we need to start over, at least with regard to this demographic. Yeah. And so you've been working at figuring out how to start this over or hit reset here a bit. Um, and you're actually in the policymaking apparatus now, kind of formally, right? I mean, you sit in the House of Lords, yeah. you can propose policies. Um, how have you seen that government perspective on this change over the past, since you've been there? I mean, it's yeah. five or six years now, and the British government, with all of their online harms work, and feels like they're stepping into this space in a serious way. Um, how did that change come about, do you think? I mean, that's a huge uh, uh, question. Mm. And if I, if I say, let me answer it in a couple of different ways. So the first thing is to think at systemic level and go, okay, let's at first prove that childhood is everywhere and that yeah. you that the digital isn't exempt. And that's been a very long journey. Right. But it's And that's so, like a first principle issue, right? Because if you don't have that, you can't do anything on top of that differentiation. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And that was the basis upon which I do a lot of my sort of uh, when you say levers, is to look at where the levers are and you look, 196 countries do embody children's rights, do report to the council, do, you know, da, da, da. And at least now they're going to have to report on the digital world. Mm. And, and we have set out some pretty tough things or, you know, so that's the first thing. Then that put me in mind when we had the, uh, we, uh, uh, all of your listeners will be aware of GDPR mm-hmm. and, the, and the data protection regulation. Mm. But when it came through our house and I looked at it and it said, yeah, kids need special uh, consideration. And then you look for the other bit and you kind of go, oh. In, in what way? <laughs> yeah. In what way? Yeah. yeah. And... And also there's the whole debate about 13 and 16 and we've created a situation where in the rest of the world a child is uh, someone under 18 and in the digital world suddenly you're supposed to be an adult at 13. Can you explain that before we move on? I mean, that that always baffles me. Is that just because the companies have set within their terms of service agreements that age? Uh, Totally arbitrary? It's actually to do with the American law, COPPA, which is a piece of consumer law that was actually researched last century, came in in 2000, and was before any of the services that kids are currently using. And it's completely out of date and it's about advertising. And uh. the, it has been exported as a norm around the world. And it's very, very problematic in a number of, of ways, including that it's very poorly adhered to, and it also relies on the concept of consent. Mm. And I am sure that we could spend an entire hour mm. on the concept of consent in the digital world, which we won't. But yeah. so yeah, in yeah, every yeah. way, not fit for purpose. Got it. Yeah. Uh, hopefully a Biden government will be uh, tackling this in short order. But it has meant that de facto adulthood begins at 13 in the digital world. So all of these sort of very you know, ludicrous things. And I'm looking at the legislation and I go, okay, let me put together this idea that they need special consideration with the ideas that we have, that they have rights and needs. Mm. Yeah. With the idea that they are in fact a, a child until they're 18. And then with a very, very distinctive and important idea, which is 
We must stop talking about the services that are directed at children because children spend most of their time in services that are not directed at them or indeed they may not actively be using. So mm. when you have your discussions about facial recognition, about mm. biometric data, about uh, mm. misinformation, disinformation, all of these things are affecting children and yet every piece of policy is about YouTube kids. Right, these limited niche products that yeah. are, are not really widely yeah, used. Yeah. No, and, and yeah. to be honest, some of them are good, some of them are bad, but that's sure. not where the problem lies. Yeah? yeah, it's not the point, right? So yeah. it's not the point. So putting all of that together, I introduced amendment into the bill that has now found the light of day in law, and it's, 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 it was at one point called the Age Appropriate Design Code. It's now called the Children's Code. Hmm. It's the first of its kind. And it, it basically sets out what it means to give children special consideration and a high level of protection. And it won't be lost on you that because it is data law, it actually gets in to the system. Because if that's where the action is, if that's where the money is, if that's where we're, you know, follow the data, mm. as it were, that is where the solution is. So that was a very long way of, yeah. of, of even before you get to the harms piece, yeah. of actually talking about levers. You talk about first principles and rights. You talk about following the money in mm. the data law. Uh, and I am very hopeful that, that the Kids Code will actually, like GDPR, spread around the world. And I know for a fact that there are several jurisdictions uh, where it is currently under consideration and will be adopted in short order. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I highly suspect Canada will be one of those at some point. Uh, I can't imagine it not being used as a template. I, I stand ready to help anyone in Canada who wishes to, mm. to, to take that action. Um, yeah. Be careful. It'll be like you're going to school offer. You may be uh, on the tour of national governments globally soon. <laughs> so. uh, hap uh, happily so, because I think it's very profound because it deals with profiling, it deals with nudge techniques, it deals with terms and conditions. You know, in the end, the minute that you start talking about this stuff, it starts being very, very quick to the same set of solutions. Well, and same set of solutions across age groups too, frankly. I mean, that list of 15 changes in the code or requirements in the code um, are certainly all things I would like to have on my behavior too, right? So, so it could be this starts to normalize some of these things beyond just kids. I really appreciate that point. I mean, I make a special case for kids and I feel we have a higher bar of duty and they require representation, higher bar of representation because they can't represent themselves in this. Um, but I would have to say on, on the record, mm. as they say where I come from, on the record, uh, that I'd be very, very happy to see that mirrored. And I very often think when I'm fighting for kids that there's some of the things uh, that I'm fighting for that I would like as a citizen. Yeah. Is there any risk in that? Is there any risk of focusing just on kids and then missing this broader structural surveillance capitalism <laughs> argument? Or is it just starting there and then moving on? I, I, think there, I think there's two things. One is it's harder to resist for politicians and for the sector and so on. I mean, mm. you know, I think, secondly, we have more levers around kids. Um, I think uh, that actually there's something else, which is, 
as much as I hate to admit it, um, this stuff takes time. And so the eight-year-olds, the kids who were eight when I started, are 16, yeah? Very shortly, they'll be 18 and they'll be adults. And I think there's two parts of it. One is we're going to win with kids, and then those kids as adults who have been treated better are going to demand more. And I think that what you probably know from the sort of fantastically interesting conversations you've had across the piece is one of the biggest battles has been to get civil society and politicians to care, to care enough. Mm. And what they do care about is the kids. And I see the work that I do as a twofold thing. One is get the lived experience of children to be a whole lot better than it is. But in doing that, you are educating politicians, you are educating parents, you are educating children, and you are educating the tech companies to a degree about what it is we are asking for, what it is indeed we are demanding. And I think that that can only grow uh, to be a more citizen-based thing. But I think if you try and boil the ocean, we get nowhere. Just closing in, in here on the end, but um, this conversation ends up zeroing in on these tech companies, I think rightfully so, mm. like you said. Mm. They've built the infrastructure, they benefit from the infrastructure. Mm. Um, but the flip side of the failure, and I think some of the responsibility here, seems to be the ease with which our institutions have adopted those technologies and I think of the education system as a case in point, right? When COVID hits and we enter into pandemic, what do we do? We all jump on the platforms and start using them as teaching tools. Mm. Um, and there's case after case after case of that being the issue. The healthcare system's the same. Mm. The, mm. And so I guess, yes, we need to put pressure on platforms and technology, the technologies themselves. But do you see that broader shift as necessary too, that we just start really thinking more democratically and deliberatively about what tools we use and when and why and who builds them? <laughs> I mean, 100%. And, and I've been actually having a battle since the beginning of lockdown here in the UK because we've got this sort of astonishing thing where the kids get sent home and the whole focus is towards mandating schools to do online learning. And I'm sitting there as a virtually lone voice because even many of the people who campaign with me in different areas were, were don't talk about safeguarding now. Don't mm. talk about safeguarding. And then I get a tsunami of teachers saying, this is what happened in my Google class yesterday. This is what happened in my Microsoft team. You know, we are in a situation, yeah, where school for a child is no longer safe. School for a teacher is no longer safe. And I have to say the first person who I saw in real life uh, during the pandemic was a teacher who I went to visit who had had such horrific ha things happening, you know, in her school that I went to help her. But she turned around to me and she said, I dare not set homework because I do not want to be the person to send those kids online into a world that is so unsafe and so unsuitable. And so now I'm failing my kids' education. Now, that is a sort of a manifestation 
of what you're saying. And mm. absolutely, I think we are about to, at a societal level here in the UK, I think we're about to see a horrible attempt to sell our health data through the NHS to the big companies. Mm. I think we will see that, you know, and whether that's a battle we can win. And I, I think... You know, I don't want to be dystopian about this because I'm fundamentally an optimist. I think this is all about uses and abuses. This is marvelous technology. It does wonderful things. Look at us speaking here. This mm. is an absolutely incredible thing. But yeah. we have to have limits and we have valorized efficiency and theoretically low price over people, democracy, planet, and our kids' future. And that is not a good deal, yeah? And the mm. handful of people who are winning out of that deal are winning and winning and winning. And even during the pandemic, they got a whole lot richer. And the people who are losing are losing and losing and losing. And, and, and it's, it, it, it is as broad an issue as 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 we choose to define it. I mean, there is virtually no edge to it. And that's why I actually think we need regulation, we need standards, we need consistency. Uh, we need to decide what kind of communities we want to live in. And we've got to say, do you know what? Not growth at any cost. The god of growth must be killed. Yeah, man, it's, I agree with all of that. And it it strikes me that you you started this within real life looking at the problem of a device in a kid's hand and now we're talking about the nature of global capitalism the future of democracy right I mean, this is expanded into a a much broader challenge and agenda and i i wonder if you see that that's the direction of it i guess uh, you know what it is, but the way that i choose to frame it and the way that i think is important to frame it is it's their future democracy Mm -hmm. You know, and, and they are the forgotten. Yeah. People think that we think about this, but they don't. And all of these debates are centered, you know, either it's either what we're giving them to inherit. Yeah. Or it's what we're failing to do right now. But they are the forgotten demographic. And I don't have to look further than children to be in the center of all these debates because they are forgotten endlessly, endlessly forgotten in the digital world. That was my conversation with Baroness Beban Kidron. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.